0: Hi, and welcome to On and Off, our podcast covering the on-premise and off-premise beverage alcohol industry. I'm Kyle Swartz, editor of Beverage Dynamics and Stateways Magazines. My usual co-host, Melissa Dowling, is off today, so I'll be handling this one solo. I'm joined today by three leaders from the National Alcohol Beverage Control Association, or NABCA, which is the nationwide organization that represents the interest of beverage alcohol control states. Here to talk about the kind of data and important industry statistics collected by NABCA, my guests today are Neil Inslee, President and CEO of NABCA, David Jackson, Senior VP Trade Relations, COO of NABCA, and Sean Noble, General Sales Manager, Control Region, Campari, America. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining
1: me today.
2: Thanks for Hi. having us. Yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting us. Uh,
1: Absolutely. Kyle, we uh, we certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk a bit about Napca data. Uh, it is kind of the, the internal engine that drives us, you know, I'll... Uh, I'll set things up if everybody's okay with maybe a little brief history of NAPCA and the data. And then uh, we'll have a discussion, hopefully, you know, in a little more detail, but just to start with, for some of the listeners who may not uh, be aware of NAPCA or the control systems, the control markets make up about 25% of the national population and about 23% of the distilled spirit sales in the United States, which is one of the largest markets in the world. So uh, there is, you know, a bit of a presence among the control systems in the United States as far as alcohol sales go. We are the trade association that represents those control systems. And I get asked frequently, particularly in my prior life as an attorney, you know, what is the legal definition of a control system? And technically there is not one in federal law or, or, you know, in state law, but you know, we generally define it as at some point in the supply chain, the state-owned enterprise or the government takes ownership of the product. For the control systems, that's usually every control system It's at the wholesale level, uh, and in some, it's also at the retail level. And, you know, even though they're all referred to as control systems, there are no two that are exactly alike, which is by design under the 21st amendment that you know the the states could decide how they want to distribute alcohol within their jurisdictions. So, NAPCA's mission is to support our control systems in their missions. Ideally what we, you know, what we are after and what the control systems are after is kind of being that pivot or balance point between commerce and public safety. The ideal system and what our goal and mission is is to uh, make sure that that stays level. Uh, one does not outweigh the other, and that helps to promote safe and orderly markets. Uh, helps to provide uh, a good source of revenue uh, in these controlled jurisdictions, and keeps the uh, keeps the playing field level. And you know, part of that success, if you will, is directly attributed to NAFTA data, uh, our industry partners, and people, uh, and other you know interest groups can, you know, really do a deep dive and see exactly how their product or other products or categories are doing within the control systems that can be reflective of the broader audience at large. So, you know, it's and you'll hear later, you know, how granular the data can be and how valuable it can be to many different stakeholders. But we have a long in story history. The, the organization was actually founded in the 30s, after prohibition, and it was kind of initially founded on the premise of situation that they come up on uh, as it relates to pricing, and uh, that that kind of started the the conversation in conglomerate and really started Napca in this process of collecting data. Although they weren't doing it uh, how we do it today, uh, and certainly not at the level, but you know, to say that we've you know been in the data business since the late 30s is uh, pretty unique, I think, in the market. And, you know, some have said we were big data before there was big data. So uh, we've been at it quite some time. Um, It certainly has, uh, I think, helped to strengthen our market and strengthen, uh, as I said, some of our industry partners and other stakeholders, and really getting a good look at the alcohol trends and things that happen our customers, our customer base, our purchasers of our data go far beyond even suppliers and manufacturers. We're at a point now where, you know, we have a lot of large private equity firms and people, financial institutions purchase our data uh, to, you know, have a a vetted uh, granular look at how certain uh, categories and things are doing within the market. Um, and look at market trends and and develop all of that forecasting that they want to do. So uh, it's it's amazing to see how it's grown. And and I can tell you when you we'll talk a little bit more about it. But you know we're not resting on our laurels at this point either. We have a massive undertaking here at NAPCA now uh, to really look at our data, to have some customer engagement, and you know see what's next and where we can go and and how we can develop. Uh, We've seen a lot of people enter the data market and enter it specifically in the alcohol data market uh, over the course of the last decade. So, you know, certainly uh, there is interest there and it is of value. And we want to make sure that we can meet those folks in the marketplace and we are getting them what they want with a vetted name like NAPCA and the NAPCA brand.
0: Thank you, Neil. And, you know, uh, that kind of sounds like you're teeing it up here for David to talk a little bit about what's going on. With him over on the technology side to make uh, your data uh, attractive to businesses and beverage alcohol. So David, if you want to talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, thanks, Kyle. I, I think Neil uh, started off with you know the, a little bit of
0: history of uh, of
3: NABCA, but really back in the 90s, we started collecting the information. We currently collect 18, the, the data from 18 jurisdictions. The only one that's ever changed in the history of NABCA was Washington back in 2012. Uh, but the rest have remained control states right from prohibition. Um, back in the '90s, when we collected the data, it was just about the product—you know, how much of it each individual product sold and what the value was of that product in the state. And over the years, that's transformed into—you can look at uh, out of the 18 jurisdictions, we have channel information for 16 of the jurisdictions, and. You can look at any individual product in any account and now on any day. So we have daily data uh, that is generally between one and two days old for all uh, 18 jurisdictions. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a challenging collect. We do it. You know, there are 171 liquor boards in North Carolina and we collect it individually from all 171. There are 210 resellers of product in Maine. So they the retail stores that sell to the on premise, and we collect that data from all two hundred and ten. So we have a very comprehensive set of data. So every bottle, every
0: account, every state, every day. Uh, are there any newer technologies you're using right now in terms of how you're collecting this data?
3: Yeah, yeah, there is, uh, and yeah, we collect it in a myriad of ways. We just mentioned the hundred and seventy one liquor boards in uh, North Carolina. Well, we get it in just about every fashion you can think of from email to, uh, you know, SFTP transfer. And the technology's changed for us. We use our main our main system is called Diver uh, or Spectre Diver, which is uh, from Dimensional Insight. Uh, we also have a new mobile platform called Gateway, which gives you access to daily data, you know, at the touch of the screen, very simple, uh, easy way to work. But we also look at market share. And I think you know, when Sean gets into it, it's uh, a lot of the big companies, their big focus is on gaining share. Mm. And this is a simple way to do it. You can look at your share, not just what your share is in spirits or what it is in a state, but right what is your share within an individual account? And then how can you make an adjustment to either gain share or correct a uh, decline? And that's really the value of the information. It's so granular that a salesman can go into one individual store or restaurant and see where he was as of last month.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Sean, uh, that sounded like a question for you there. Do you mind telling us a little bit about how you at Campari uh, use the NAPCA data? What kind of insights are you getting from it and how has it benefited what you do for Campari?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, the value of the data is unbelievable, as Neil was talking about. I'll talk a little bit about the Gateway app, which is amazing, because the data is important as a sales guy that I'm in charge of sales and making my budget for the year. uh, I look at data every day. But I think it's important to understand the power of the NAPCA data, because there's other data sources that looks at like a sampling, and they come up with an aggregate on what they think the market is, you know, doing with the brands. But when it comes to the NAPCA data, it is the actual consumer pull data. Um, so the power of that data, obviously, as a salesperson, helps me you know, make sure I'm going to hit my numbers. But I can also pull it over and get some incredible consumer data that I can give back to marketing. Um, and uh, they can mm-hmm. come up with programs to help develop our brands to be a little bit more successful. But more importantly, they can monitor the success of how the brand is doing from a certain marketing campaign because we have this data. But um, it's, uh, it's also important, uh, and Neil, I think you, you brought it up with investors. People are looking at the health of our brands as investors on how well we are doing in the control market because it's a good indicator because of the power of the, of the data as, as a consumer poll that equates to how well we're doing as a company. So there's so many eyeballs on this, this great source of data uh, that helps us drive informed business decisions and consumer insights. Uh, but there also is, it's inventory management with COVID and supply chain disruption. If I didn't have this data during the years of COVID, um, I can imagine um, how my business would have gone down um, in a negative way, just having this powerful data so we can make a, you know a good supply chain information. But Neil and David, David, you brought up the Gateway app, which is we talked about the power of the data. But it's really nice to see NAPCA giving us uses in different formats now, because as we're running on the go, I have my apps up. I have my uh, tablets up. I have my phones up. Um, and I can get to this data with the the gateway app uh, right on my phone, which has been really, really nice and and the uh, you Mar- you mentioned it, David, with the market share. that's that's how I measure my business all day long and I can look at it on my phone. But uh, yeah, I really like seeing we all know that the data is super powerful and the value is amazing, uh, but I really, really enjoy the new uh, formats that we can get it in different you know phone iPad applications.
3: Yeah, thanks. You know, and, and the the thing that really sets companies apart that you know invest in the data and look at the technology that is behind it, it gives them a really serious advantage. So somebody like Sean can can get his return on investment at a much more granular level to see whether something's working in a marketplace. So people may think that uh, you know somewhere like Michigan where there are ten thousand on-premise accounts. And they think, well, there's a, a target group of 10,000 accounts. Well, it's not really. If you're selling a $70 bourbon, you're going to find that roughly 9,000 of those 10,000 accounts don't sell bourbon at $70 a bottle. They're doing either very cheap vodka or you know, or a gin or so on. But out of that thousand, they're the ones that are doing 95% of the business. And how do you best target it? Well, you spend against it, and that's what somebody like Campari and Sean can manage, and then they get a much better return than spreading it over a much greater area. I think the analogy I like to use, it's the difference between going out in the middle of the ocean and throwing a line out and hoping to fish versus standing in a trout and throwing your line into something that you know is stocked with trout. You know, Your chance of success is much greater
2: with that, David, because we can not only target and I can have a sales tactics and I know exactly where the fish are going to be at and I can start fishing. I can take that data back to my marketing department and we actually custom create programs just for these target lists. Yeah, great point.
3: Yeah, and we're talking about fishing. Neil's getting excited. Him <laughs> him squirming
1: in his chair. I was going to say he's sitting there uh, poking away. Yeah, ways. In my mind, I've got the boat loaded and, uh you know. <laughs>
0: It really is incredible, the benefits of real-time data and uh, what you can learn and what can be at your fingertips, as you were saying uh, on the phone. Um, I'm just wondering if you gentlemen, this is a question for all three of you, had anything you wanted to share about what what you're seeing the data saying at a current moment?
3: Well, in the last couple of months, things have started to decline a little bit. Mm -hmm. But remember, we've gone through, I think, nearly two years of staggering growth coming about from COVID. So, you know, most of our states uh, had significant increases. Obviously, the on-premise did not. But, you know, as we got towards the, the end of COVID or the, you know, the main restrictions, of course, the on-premise took off at such a rate that any decline in the off-premise was more than made up for. We saw significant increase in the value of the products. So, uh, which led to, I think Sean mentioned, um, you know, looking at inventory management. It's pretty hard managing inventory with tequila super premium or ultra premium growing at 80%. Now, you can see that in our data. You can see what the accounts are. Still very hard to manage inventory because if you went back seven years, which is what it takes for a tequila to be ready, and said, I think I'm going to be up 80% in 2022, I think the production people might have laughed
2: at you a little bit. Yeah, good point. Good point. And I tell you also, David, I know I look at... You're absolutely right about the trends. And it's been really weird with the shift of closing of on-premise and, and um, some major states to a shift to off-premise and then back. I I go back five years. And we hit a lot of high water marks. And if you look at a concept between like maybe a year or or six months, it may look like a decline. But during our high watermark, especially on certain brands, we've been able to hit it, maybe not grow as fast as we have, but we've had all time highs and being able to maintain it. So flat's not not bad. That's what I tell my boss. But in sales, he buy it. But, um, you know, it's a good shot. anyways. good try.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, David, you brought up a lot of the uh, individual uh, trend questions I was going to uh, possibly ask you about. Certainly, I see the tequila boom. Certainly, I see the premiumization boom. Um, I think I want to ask you about the premiumization first. You know, alcohol has really found its way in this country in recent years as an affordable luxury, and it doesn't. Seem, I mean, I, I know it's always been like that, but certainly in recent times, that's been uh, driving so much growth. Is a premiumization trend, and it doesn't seem like we have any end in sight for that. We still see consumers trading up.
3: We do, and if we look back over the years, you know, we and we track this all the way back to uh, 1999. So there, there are a lot of trends that and and brands that are no longer in existence, but it's still a good way to look at it mm-hmm. in in control states. And I do not believe it's the same in in open states there has never been a month where the price mix was negative. And the price Mm -hmm. mix is the growth of value over the growth of volume. So even during the 2009 recession, it got real close, but it actually never went below. Mm -hmm. So the the growth in value has been higher than the growth in volume every month from right through that period. And that's a good indicator of the health of the industry and, and control states in general who who have done exceptionally well right through you know, either recessions or COVID.
0: Yeah, it does seem like alcohol, uh, premiumization, premium products remain a recession-proof category. And uh, alcohol in general has done very well through recessions. I also want to ask you about tequila. Obviously, we're in the middle of an enormous tequila boom. Tequila had kind of been slowly ramping up i want to say in a couple of years pre-covid and then it's spiking now i mean you said that number 80 percent growth is just on incredible numbers again especially for a category that had already been growing this isn't some overnight boom the way that it happened for like let's say hard seltzer or cider or hard soda a number of years ago and then that giant fall off afterwards Uh, it seems like the tequila boom Certainly in motion now. Do, do we see any end in sight to this? Are we worried about an agave shortage? Just thoughts on where we are in the tequila boom right now.
3: It has, as of last month, slowed back down. Premium mm. tequila is still doing exceptionally well. It's positive, but it's not at that same staggering growth that it was before. So I think things are starting to calm down. The problem with all of these products, uh, you know, anything that's aged or takes, you know, a long time for the production, you know, agave plants, a six year process. Anything like that, you've got to be aware of, or, or, you know, you've got to try to forecast six years in advance. And that's a, that's a huge challenge, obviously, to get that forecast correct. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then throw in the other things that happen. Uh, lack of glass, you know, came in, capsules that were coming out of uh, Ukraine, uh, all those different things that all impact, you know, the, the ability to have product in the market.
0: And you had mentioned uh, supply chain information as well. I, I wanted to ask you that question, speaking of lack of glass, supply chain issue, uh, manufacturing issues. Where are we with those? Are, is that starting to normalize now? Uh, I might let Sean answer that one, I think.
2: Yeah. It's, so it's interesting with supply chain disruption. It's not just um, the boat. It's not at the port yet. There's, as as David said, there's glasses, caps. We, we had to you know, move production on components from a different part of the country. Um, It's a lot of different other other things that happen. I think it's normalizing, but it will never get to perfection for a very long period of time. But I think the companies that can use data and and get smarter about it Mm. will have less disruption and uh, probably be on the the better uh, end of it. But it's starting to normalize. I know a lot of, and I talked to a lot of my counterparts, is supply chain, companies and divisions um, and departments have gotten a lot better. But like an agave, we're, we're going to double our production in Mexico. You know, that takes a year just to, you know, get the permits and get the production uh, running, let alone the, as David said, the agave that takes seven years to maturation. Uh, and then, then throw in bourbon, you know, I mean, good yeah. bourbon is not only the production, but then it's the the, the, the aging of it. And, uh, you know, that's eight eight, ten years. So um, it's getting better. I think what's happened, though, is... You're seeing a major shift as these departments get better and reorganize. We get a lot better at how we're doing things. And I think there's going to probably be a good thing for the environment as well. I think everybody Mm -hmm. looked at it on, you know, how can I get the lowest cost and if we outsource it to the same country to get the lowest cost, well, that puts us in a huge liability if there's a, a disruption in supply chain. So, how do we disperse it between the the, the country? And if it's you're paying a little bit more, but you know, it's going to be you know, guarantee the inventory probably makes it a little bit more sense. So, it's changing in a positive way. Yeah,
3: good. Cool. Another thing that we do have. We have uh, you know daily inventory. I think virtually all of the states are either, if you're looking at it today, you're looking at last night's ending inventory or at worst the day before. So you can track it down and look at the products. You can look at the sales because we've got daily data. You should never really run out if you're managing it properly. There are always going to be allocated products and things that happen and shortages, but that can be worked through. Uh, Again, just using, using the data to manage it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Thoughts on bourbon. We brought it up and haven't really uh, touched on it yet. Obviously, we were a missed and remain a missed a giant bourbon boom. Uh, What are your thoughts on the growth of that category and the longer term trajectory? I can
2: jump in. There's two categories that stay uh, remaining very, very hot with premiumizing, um, as David said that. And in the control region, we've never we've always grown value faster than and than the volume. Uh, as far as categories goes, tequila and bourbon are still really, really, really hot. I know we as a company uh, are taking bourbon very seriously. We have a pretty big bourbon brand, but we just made acquisitions for not only brands but for for uh, capacity with liquid. Um, we see that trend being premium, and it's not slowing down. You know, we, we're making our big bets on agave and, and bourbon.
0: Yeah. I always say, whenever I get asked the question about when will this bourbon boom end, I always say the bourbon boom will end when I stop getting asked what the difference between bourbon and whiskey is. Um, <laughs> and I still get asked that question once a week easily. And just it just goes to show you how much more consumer knowledge is still out there. And the consumers are so passionate about these products and they so want to learn. And there's still so much left to learn uh, for these consumers. So I, I, I agree with you. I still think there's a long uh, road ahead for yeah. uh, for whiskey and for tequila.
1: Kyle, I would say, you know, one thing that that certainly I've noticed from years of being uh, both a consumer and uh, in the business, you know, booms always create synergy, it seems. Mm. And, you know, we saw it with Irish whiskey and then the whiskey in general and bourbon kind of came in on the coattails, had a great story. Uh, a little mystery around it certainly tequila I think has benefited from from that bourbon experience where consumers are now you know they started looking at other brands that had good stories that uh was kind of an artisanal you know uh feel to its production and 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 what goes into creating uh, a good product and you know it's kind of followed in along that and that's one thing that you know, again the data certainly is is uh, important there once you start to see these trends and you know who's going to be next or where is the next energy going to be created and what category but it it is uh it is fascinating to me to have watched uh you know kind of that uh, for lack of a better you know analogy that rising tide floats all boats kind of thing but it always seems to be whenever you have an emergence or a, a new category there's some synergy there with another category of a product or something that that follows in with it. Very That's well, it. You know, like uh, the, um, very good.
3: Sean and I have been around for a while, but you know, if you think back 15 years, could you have ever imagined people lining outside a store down the street and around the corner waiting to
2: buy bourbon? Right. That's what we're at now. I've
0: yeah. seen fights almost break out in these lines. By the way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in Ohio, I've seen it lap all the way around the, the building, mm. and uh, special releases selling out in a minute. It's oh a, yeah. It's- uh, I was going to say, um, Neil, on your tequila trend, the uh, category being hot. It's really cool looking at the NAPCA data. Is we even within the categories is what we're seeing, and and you're you're absolutely right. As consumers are kind of being more inquisitive about what they're drinking and the quality of the liquid in there, we're seeing reposado starting to grow three times mm-hmm. on on blanco, and it shows you the sophistication of the palate, kind mm-hmm. of a. Board and understanding what's the difference of, you know, a little bit of an aging does to the liquid. But we're definitely on the marketing side, seeing way more interest about, um, I think they're moving from what's the story to what's the, you know, what's in the bottle, who's the gimmick guy behind it into more of what's the liquid mm. and an advancement of the quality of the liquid. Um, it's exciting times.
0: I completely agree. I've seen that as well in branding recently. It's gotten away from, hey, this was founded by somebody in 1830. And then we found the Recipe in a steamer trunk and an addict. We got away from that kind of branding, too. This is just very good stuff. And, I, you know, you see that, especially in whiskey right now with the, the products coming out. I, I think of 2XO. I think of Penelope. These brands were their entire thing is just were high quality blends or were high quality barrel finishes. And those brands have really taken off. Um And also just, Neil, I want to go back and just say, I completely agree with your point that bourbon has really helped the tequila boom. Many years ago, gosh, probably seven or eight years ago, I had uh, the great TJ Douglas. He is the owner of the Urban Grape in Boston. That's the best wine store in Massachusetts and one of the best wine stores in the country. He told me something that was very, very prophetic. He said, all whiskey drinkers are tequila drinkers. They just don't know it yet, but they they figured it out. He TJ, as usual, was 100% correct on that. Uh, so he he was really early on that. Uh, I just wanted another tequila thing. You know, uh, all of us, I assume, or many of us were down uh, in Orlando uh, for the 86th annual NABCA annual conference uh, last month. And they have, uh, you know, the expo halls, uh, which were packed with brands and brands and brands and brands. And my biggest takeaway, and I said this on the last podcast, so I apologize for repeating myself, but I just wanted to comment here and see if you guys have anything else to say. It's just, I was amazed by the sheer number of tequila brands. I'd never seen that many tequila brands. At a napka conference, and not only that, I pro I, I don't know how many tequilas I tasted. You lose track somewhere around like twenty or thirty tequilas you drink in a row. and then uh you certainly lose track there, but they all tasted great. I don't think I had a single tequila that tasted off. And, you know, like Sean said, uh, discerning drinkers drink repos. I, I drank nothing but repos and it was just quality repo after quality repo and Even, um, you know, I'm a little hesitant sometimes with these celebrity brands just because, you know, who knows? It's a celebrity. Who knows what the involvement is? There's money. They're just kind of get product out there. I know maybe that's the thought. And every single celebrity tequila I drank was great. Like the Rocks tequila was great. Whichever Kardashian had a tequila, it was great. LeBron James's tequila, it was great. They all tasted great. There's just so much quality tequila right now.
1: Yeah, I think, and I'll say just kind of high-level I think people have realized that and I've had an opportunity to talk to some of these uh, celebrity brand owners or, you know, endorsers, but mainly the brand owners, mm. you know, they realize that the the palette sophistication, if you will, of the consumer nowadays, they might buy it once because of your name, but they're not coming back unless what's in the bottle is is of good quality. And I think they've, they've come to understand that, you know, this is a, uh, And plus, you know, it's their name on it. They, Mm -hmm. you know, they want a good quality brand to be associated uh, with them. But I think that's transcends, you know, again, across that entire category. The pool level is so high. I mean, Mm -hmm. you, you know, you better bring it, you know, if you're going to compete in that market, it doesn't matter who your name is. So, but, but I agree, I, you know, and, and I will say Kyle, just, you know, because of our mission and what we do, you were sampling product in a very <laughs> responsible manner. Of course. And allowed you to try 20 different because they were. You know, <laughs> they of course. Sampled. Of course. And
0: I and I'm a professional people, anyone listening, and most people yeah, listen to Aren't, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I have one last question for you, uh, you gentlemen. And speaking of the 86th uh, NAPCA annual, and I want you all to be very honest here. Uh while we were down there at the Gaylord Palms Resort, did you go down the water slide? I
1: did. <laughs> Well,
3: I, I went through, I didn't realize it was a trapdoor one until
0: I got up to the very top and saw it. Uh, oh, you yeah. went to the high one. You went to the topity top one. The high one.
1: <laughs> yeah, they they asked me if I was going down and I asked them if they had a plunger.
0: <laughs> I, I did not go up to the tippity-top. I went down one of the middle ones, but boy, it was it was tightly coiled tightly coiled and when you have a stomach full of 30 tequilas or lord knows how many tequilas it's you get to the blob and you're like all right we're not doing that again <laughs> Fun well kyle, i
2: was in commercial business meetings and i was too busy working to. Oh. <laughs> I, as i know my team may be listening to this podcast
1: <laughs> well i i can honestly say yes kyle we had uh, we had quite a few tequilas there but there still weren't enough to get me to go to the top of that slide and trap <laughs> door down the uh the tube.
0: My thoughts exactly. I, n- nor were that enough tequilas for me to go all the way up to the top and do whatever in the world that I'm God bless you, uh David, for going down that one.
1: Well, it's that Aussie man, you know, he's uh fearless. <laughs> well <laughs>
0: Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, joining us on uh, the On and Off podcast today. We really appreciate all three of you taking time out of your schedules for this. Great.
1: Right, thank you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, we certainly appreciate doing these. Uh, we we did one around legal. Uh, we put together this one. We look forward to partnering and and we enjoy our partnership with your group and, and, and the uh, publications and everything and uh, certainly enjoy doing these and look forward to doing more in the future. Thank
0: you so much, Neil. We look forward to doing more in the future as well. And thank you to all of our listeners. uh, And uh, please stay tuned until our uh, next podcast episode. And until then, cheers. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed the On and Off podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Also, you can find more great content at cheersonline.com and beveragedynamics.com, including recipes, product reviews, and interviews with the movers and shakers of the beverage alcohol industry. You can also sign up for our free weekly e-newsletter for both publications on our websites. Cheers!